listening to the ACB Advocacy Update. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Untangling Transportation. I am your facilitator, Ron Brooks, and I am grateful that you are um, here today. The whole point of Untangling Transportation is to really help uh, really dive into the details of transportation. And we typically talk about things that roll or float or fly or you know, run on rails. I mean, typically it's 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 paratransit or transit, but yeah, you know, all those other things. But one of the things that's that's really important to keep in mind is every trip, um, unless you're going to the car that is in your own garage, um, and and um, I, you know we don't have autonomous vehicles yet, so I'm assuming very few of us are doing that, unless um, we've got somebody to drive it. Uh, every trip begins and ends in the pedestrian environment, whether you're walking down your own sidewalk to the sidewalk in front of your house um, and then walking down to catch a bus or going to a train station um, or walking in a downtown environment. It doesn't matter. Trips begin and end. We, we begin and end our trips as pedestrians. Um, so the pedestrian environment is an important part of the transportation system in our country. Um, and in many respects, it's it's been kind of uh, a little bit neglected from the standpoint of people who are blind or have low vision. Um, and it's certainly uneven. There are places where uh, it's pretty good. There are places where it's not so good. And there are places where it's virtually non-existent. Um, so I, I, don't, I don't remember when, Chris will, uh, the US Access Board uh, proposed this thing called the Public Right-of-Way Accessibility Guidelines, which was really going to help uh, traffic uh, engineers and street designers and all the people that work on the pedestrian spaces come up with more accessible pedestrian spaces. Uh, it took uh, a few years, uh, as in like more than a decade, uh, but those regulations were finally issued uh, by the Access Board uh, in uh, earlier this year, in August of 2023. Uh, and, and now there is much more to come. So we have two guests who are very, very close to this topic. They're experts in it. Uh, we have our own Chris Spell, who uh, is a member of the ACB Board of Directors. He's involved with the North Carolina Affiliate. Um, he has been involved in the Transportation and Pedestrian Environmental Access Committees uh, for many years. Uh, and he is, he is the person that I think about when I want to ask questions or get information about anything that has to do with pedestrian spaces. We also have Sarah Presley, and Sarah is staffed to the, that same access board that has just released these regulations. So we could not have two better people to come and talk about this topic. First of all, I thank goodness for Sarah Presley, because she really is the expert on ProAg. Um, you know, I just kibitz and uh, but if you hear something that you don't like about what's in ProAg, it's not her fault, right? She's not the boss. She's staff. She does training, etc. But she's not responsible for the uh, what's in there. Um, and you'll hear from some of my comments that I'm not too happy with a lot of it, but it is what it is. So when we talk about public rights of way accessibility guidelines. We're talking about 
streets and intersections and sidewalks and on-street parking and various traffic control devices. And so it's a broad topic. And it's also not yet done because PROAG is a guideline. It is not a rule. In order for it to become an ADA legal standard, it has to be adopted or modified and adopted by two federal agencies. One is the U.S. Department of Justice, and the other is the U.S. Department of Transportation. And in a sense, this is their second bite at the apple because they both are public members of the Access Board, so they've already been through this. But they have an opportunity and an obligation to come out with a notice of proposed rulemaking, each of them, and they can go beyond what the Access Board has done. They can't do less, but they can do more. And so that's important. So to understand where PROAG fits within the Americans with Disabilities Act, uh, PROAG fits within the title of the ADA, which covers state and local government agencies. And so uh, public is the first important term in PROAG. So it covers public facilities as opposed to private facilities. So PROAG doesn't apply to the local shopping mall or strip mall because those are privately owned and operated. It only applies to, uh, <clears throat> the, to facilities that are owned or operated by uh, local governmental agencies. So how does, how does ADA Title II, the public uh, agency title, fit into PROAG? So under the ADA, um, public agencies are required to provide, and the term is program access, to their um, their functions, uh, the things that they provide to the public, their programs and activities. And program access is a term that means they don't have to make everything accessible, but they have to provide access. So uh, that was intended to keep help states not spend as much money on architectural accessibility. So at a, at a state college, for example, if a student was signed up for a class uh, and had a laboratory that was up steps and they were using a wheelchair, um, one of the options would be to relocate the class so that the student could have access to it rather than dealing with the structural inaccessibility. So that works fine um, so long as there is some alternative to actual physical access. Now, one of the areas where there isn't an alternative is for people who use wheelchairs that want to use a sidewalk. They have to have a curb ramp. And PROAG has standards for curb ramps, and you'll hear about them. And so that's a, that's, there's no way to get around that. And so the ADA itself requires the installation of curb ramps at both ends of a sidewalk. And curb ramps have been required since the early 70s, as a matter of fact. Um, what we don't have uh, by way of a requirement is the requirement for accessible pedestrian signals in the same way that curb ramps are required. So 
One of the things you have to understand about PROAG is that it does not apply to existing facilities. So the Department of Justice, through this program access standard, covers exist obligations of existing facilities. So if you walk out your door and you come to an intersection and there is a visual-only pedestrian signal, PROAG doesn't apply to that signal unless, unless it's altered, and that then triggers an obligation if it's altered to put in a, an accessible pedestrian signal, or unless it's replaced, okay? Now, part of what that means is that some of this is going to take a long time to change because the life cycle of a pedestrian signal can be 25 years. So um, if your uh, visual-only pedestrian signal is out there and they put it in a few years ago, it may be 25 years before they uh, have to replace it with an accessible signal unless they alter it. And Sarah will talk about what the meaning of alterations uh, is under PROAG. Now, you probably heard that uh, the... ACB New York affiliate and the ACB Metropolitan Chicago affiliate successfully sued their respective cities to get orders saying that the existing uh, visual-only pedestrian signals were unlawful. And how do they do that? And this was not through ProReg. Well, they did it because, um, number one, there were so few accessible pedestrian signals. Uh, in New York City, less than 4% of their pedestrian signals were accessible. And in Chicago, it was less than one half of 1%. And so what the courts found is, okay, these cities have uh, pedestrian signals that sighted people can't see and can't use. And so we have to risk our lives crossing these streets while sighted people get information that we don't get because we can't see it. And therefore, uh, we are denied program access. And also, the ADA uh, has a requirement that uh, state and local governments that uh, produce information, they have to communicate that information effectively to people with disabilities. It's called effective communication. And generally, in the public uh, agency title, as well as in the public accommodation title, this usually means by requiring things like qualified sign, sign language interpreters, uh, cart services, um, braille, uh, audio output, uh, audible description, and the like. Um, but it certainly also applies to the situation where the government has provided visual-only pedestrian signals that have a walking man uh, saying when it's time to walk, which we can't see. And so the, the argument that ACB has made is that they have to effectively communicate that, and that requires the installation of accessible pedestrian signals. So that's that's where we've gotten through litigation. PROAG is now a another arrow in our quiver. And um, I'm going to let Sarah take it down and talk about what PROAG says. Take it away, Sarah. Okay, thank you very much, Chris. And I just, before I get started really into the meat of this stuff, I just wanted to point out that the Access Board, what we basically do, or one of our biggest, one of the biggest things that we do, 
is we create guidelines that later become standards by having some enforcement agency adopt them. As Chris said, in the case of PROAG, like the Department of Justice and the Department of Transportation. But we do make these guidelines based on lots of input from advisory committees, from comments from you and everybody else, from industry, from consumers, from everybody. So there's been a lot of input for this um, for PROAG, but unfortunately, or, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, depending on who you are, you know, not everything will be to everyone's satisfaction. Um, so mostly what I'm going to do for my part of the presentation is go over some of the requirements in PROAG for elements that are related to what we do, or what are, that are most relevant, I should say, to pedestrians who are blind or who have low vision. But first, I just, I did want to talk a bit about alterations versus new construction since Chris mentioned that. So much of compliance with PROAG will be triggered by alterations since purely new construction in the public right-of-way is rare. And as far as PROAG is concerned, purely, I mean, new construction is basically going out into a field somewhere where there's no public right-of-way and creating a new public right-of-way. That is, that is considered new construction in PROAG. So in this current rule of current uh, final iteration of PROAG, the, de the definition of alteration is broader than it was in previous versions. An alteration is a change to or an addition of a pedestrian facility in existing developed public right-of-way that affects or could affect uh, pedestrian access, circulation, or usability. So even if something new is is added to an existing developed public right-of-way, that addition is still considered to be an alteration and it can comply with the requirements to the maximum extent feasible. Now, what that means is, it, for example, something that might not, so basically what that means is that there might be underlying or um, existing conditions that might make it so that when you're adding something or altering something, that that can, the element cannot comply fully with the uh, with the standards and some examples of what might make full compliance with uh, technically infeasible would include existing physical constraints such as underlying underlying terrain, underlying structures, adjacent developed facilities, um, drainage, or the presence of a significant natural or historic feature. So these are some things that would make it might make it so that something doesn't comply fully. But what I want to point out here is that in the ADA design requirements that are currently standards, an, all, an addition of an element would not be considered an alteration. Additions in ADA have to comply with the requirements fully for new construction. They don't get this uh, way out with technical infeasibility. But in PROAG, because so much of the public right-of-way is developed and there are so many existing conditions, the, the definition for alteration was broadened. Now, the language in the previous version of PROAG also said that what is altered must be made accessible to the extent practicable within the scope of the project of the alteration. But that language has been changed in this version. In fact, it's really been dropped out. So now, in this respect, PROAG is more like the ADA design standards in the sense that 
you have to, if you touch it, you fix it. If you alter something, it must be made compliant with PROAG to the maximum extent feasible, but only if you touch it. If you don't touch it, then technically nothing has to be done unless you rely on something like program access, as Chris was pointing out. So for, for accessible, for pedestrian signals that are not, that are only visual, there may be alterations that will trigger uh, making those more accessible, but it's going to, we were not, we did not list any examples of those in the PROAG because we were not, we basically, those got rejected by people when we tried to do it. But there will be alterations that will hopefully make it so that um, pedestrian signals must be made accessible, even in a, not just when they're replaced or when they're added, we can hope. And certainly that's something to take up when the Department of Justice and the Department of Transportation are making their rules. Okay, as Chris said, there is a lot in PROAG, but I'm only going to cover a few elements that I think are the most relevant to pedestrians who are blind or who have low vision. And I will start with curb ramps and blended transitions. Okay, so the difference between a curb ramp and a blended transition is that a curb ramp is steeper than a blended transition. A blended transition has a slope or a steepness up to 5%, and a curb ramp has a slope between 5% and 8.3%. So they're a little bit steeper. So there must be a curb ramp or a blended transition at both ends of a crosswalk, as Chris mentioned, and at, inter at an intersection corner, there must be one curb ramp or blended trans one curb ramp or blended transition must be provided for each crosswalk or a single blended transition that spans all crosswalks at the intersection corner may be provided. And the curb ramp, excluding its flared sides, or the blended transition must be contained wholly within the width of the crosswalk that it serves. I do want to point out here that if you have one of these blended transitions that goes all the way around the corner, I think they used to call that a dep depressed corner, then there has to be 48 inches minimum of blended transition within each of those crosswalks on that corner. So, Sari, can I interrupt you with a, with a comment or question here? Sure. So, a blended transition, my, my kind of understanding of them is where instead of having a uh, a shorter and sharper incline curb ramp, the whole sidewalk uh, gradually uh, drops down to street level so that you can just roll off the sidewalk because the curb, in effect, disappears uh is that accurate well it doesn't it 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 it, it really is about steepness i mean you could have a blended transition that looks something like a curb ramp and if it's less than five percent of a slope it would still be considered a blended transition but as you say i think in general blended transitions sometimes they're wider sometimes they go all the way around a corner and it is it's just a, a much more gradual steepness that gets you down to the street instead of having the curb ramp, which is steeper. But we still we'll, have, to have a detectable it. warning. Right? Well, I, I'm going to, I'm going to get to that. Okay, Sorry. <laughs> we'll get to that. Okay. But before we get to that, uh, what about the diagonal curb ramp? Everybody's favorite thing to hate. So in alterations where existing physical constraints make providing curb ramps for each crosswalk or a single blended transition spanning the corner 
where if, if this is technically infeasible due to some existing constraints, then a single curb ramp is permitted at the apex of the intersection corner. Now, this is a little more specific. We used to just say in the pr previous PROAGs that, that you could have this diagonal curb ramp. Now we're very specific to say that it has to be at the apex of the corner. It can't be just anywhere on the corner. Now, of course, the best practice is to have those two curb ramps um, for each crosswalk with the curb ramp wholly contained with or wholly contained within the crosswalk that it serves. But this, they still have this in here about having this one curb ramp to serve the two intersections at a corner if um, it's technically infeasible to provide the two or to provide that transition, the blended transition that goes all the way around the corner. Okay, and now a bit about detectable warnings. So detectable warnings are required on curb ramps and blended transitions at crosswalks and they are required for the full width, width of the ramp run or the blended transition. Did you want to say anything about that, Chris? Nope. Okay, so I'm going to keep going. So they're required for that. They are also required at pedestrian refuge islands. Now, the definition of a pedestrian refuge island in PROAG, and we do have one in this version, is that it is a defined area that is 72 inches long minimum in the direction of pedestrian travel located between traffic lanes of pede for pedestrian refuge within a median or a splitter island or a channelizing island. Now, since each pad of truncated domes, when you have curb rant, uh, uh, when you have detectable warnings, each pad of the truncated domes must extend two feet minimum in the direction of travel. So since this is a since this is the case, a pedestrian refuge island must go far enough to allow some separation between detectable warnings encountered when approaching or getting up onto the island and the warnings that are encountered when leaving the island. Or someone might think that she had gotten to the other side of the street once the detectable warnings ended. So if there is a median in the middle of a street that is, say, only four feet long in the direction of travel, it is not considered to be a pedestrian refuge island and must not have detectable warnings. So the idea here is that, you know, and I've seen this where you have medians in the middle of the street that aren't very wide at all, and they, and they are detectable warnings, and there's one set of detectable warnings there. So unless you just know the street, a person could certainly think that once they cross those detectable warnings, they were ac actually at the other side of the street instead of in the next part of the street. Okay, now back to where detectable warnings are required. They are required at pedestrian at-grade rail crossings that are not located within a street. They are required at boarding platforms at transit stops not protected by guards or screens and they are required at boarding and alighting areas at sidewalks or street uh, that are at sidewalk or street level transit stops for rail vehicles that are again not protected by screens or guard and we have a new requirement for where detectable warnings are required um, pedestrian circulation paths at driveways controlled with yield or stop control devices 
or traffic signals must have detectable warnings. That used to just be a recommendation in the older version of PROAG. Now it's a requirement. So if you're crossing one of these big commercial driveways and they have some kind of traffic control there, like, the, you know, the, 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 a traffic control signal of some sort, then they have, to have they have to have the detectable warnings on the sidewalk there as you cross and when you get to the other side. Okay, now I am going to move on to accessible pedestrian signals. And before I get started with those requirements, I want to give a few relevant definitions. And the first definition is the walk interval. So the walk interval is the interval during which the walking person's sig uh, signal indication, which symbolizes walk, is displayed. So when people see that walking man, that's the walk interval. And next, a pedestrian signal head is a device containing the walking person symbol, which symbolizes walk, and the upraised hand symbol, which symbolizes don't walk. And a pedestrian head, uh, signal head is installed to direct pedestrian traffic at a crosswalk. Okay, the next definition is for a pedestrian activated warning device. And this is a device that is installed in conjunction with a warning sign and is activated to alert vehicle operators to the presence of a pedestrian. And an example of this is that rectangular rapid flashing beacon. So this beacon alerts people who are driving that there's a pedestrian who might be trying to cross the street because maybe somebody pushed a button to, to get that signal going, but it doesn't actually require a vehicle to stop. And then my final definition before we get into requirements is an accessible pedestrian signal, which is a device that communicates information about pedestrian signal timing in non-visual formats such as um, audible such as audible tones or speech messages or, and, and also vibrating surfaces. Okay, so now I'm gonna move on to what is required. So where pedestrian signal heads are provided at crosswalks, their walk indications must comply with the requirements for accessible pedestrian signals, and they must have either an accessible push button or a passive detector or pre-timed operation that, that activates those accessible pedestrian signals. And the walk in, and it also has to activate the walk interval if that's applicable. If somebody, if when somebody who sees pushes that button and it activates the walk interval, then the, the accessible pedestrian signal would have to do the same. So that's what's required for the pedestrian signal head, which is the device that has the walk, the walking man or the um, don't walk or the raised hand for don't walk. Now, for pedestrian activated warning devices, those must have accessible push buttons or passive detection that activate a more limited audible indication. And we'll talk about all of this more as I go on. Well, let, so, let me just jump in here. And okay. so, so a, pedest a pedestrian head essentially is an add-on to a, a traffic signal that controls car flow, right? I mean, it's just, it, it's a separate part of a signal. Is that correct? I am not 100% sure how that technically works. But I mean, you know, it's basically, 
the it's the the signal that has the walk and don't walk indication. Right. That's a pedestrian so most, signal head, yeah. and I think you could add. I think you can add that. Yes. Yeah. So most places where they have traffic signals, if if they want to have a pedestrian signal, it's 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 an add-on to the traffic signal. So the next thing is, um, you know, how long do you have to cross the intersection? Um, and there's a standard for that. Uh, so when that uh, uh, walking person sign is on or you get the indication that uh, <clears throat> Sarah will talk about with successful pedestrian signals, the time that you have to cross can't be longer than three and a half feet per second. So the reason that's important is some of us walk faster than others. And uh, for example, uh, I'm mobility impaired. I use a support cane. Uh, I don't walk anywhere near th three and a half feet per second. I walk at about 1.8 feet per second. So depending on how fast you walk, you may have to really hustle across uh, the, the street in the time that uh, is allotted for the crossing. And that's just something I want people to be aware of. Okay. I'll yeah, and I, and I actually had taken some of that out of my presentation, but I'll, I'll mention it here since you mentioned it. So basically what Chris was talking about is there's something called a pedestrian, a pedestrian clearance time. And the pedestrian clearance time is the time that it takes a person to walk from the push button for the, access, for the signal to the other side of the street or to a, to a refuge island if a refuge island is, is provided in the middle where they're expecting somebody to stop before they cross the rest of the street. And that pedestrian clearance time must be calculated using a 3.5 feet per second or less time. So they could calculate it for less, but they don't have to. That is that is the, the maximum speed, walking speed that they can use to calculate the pedestrian clearance time. So, and the walk interval is, the, the walk interval, basically the pedestrian clearance time, what that ultimately is supposed to do is when you, when you, if you, let's say you get to the street and you start crossing just as the, the walk interval is still going when you get there, but as soon as you step out, the walk sign, the the man, the walking man stops. The pedestrian clearance time is supposed to allow you to get across if you start at that at the very end of that walk interval. That's the idea for the pedestrian clearance time. But I mean, it's a problem for a lot of people that, and, it, and we got a lot of comments about this that the that the uh, the speed is too. Most, of course, some of the traffic engineers said three point five feet per second is way too slow, and a lot of other people said, you know, well, it's way too fast. You know, there's older people, and not just blind people, but you know, people just who are older or who who use walkers or anything like that. But that's ultimately the number that they landed on. So I will go ahead and continue with some of the requirements getting into accessible pedestrian signals, and I will start with the accessible pedestrian put push button, since those are required for both the pedestrian signal heads and the pedestrian activated warning devices, unless of course there's some kind of passive detection or pre-timed operation that makes that happen. So first of all, the push button that you use to activate these things must meet requirements for operable parts. And this basically means that they need to be you know, more easily operable by people who use wheelchairs and maybe people who have some, some dexterity issues. So 
the button must be 15 inches minimum to 48 inches maximum above the sidewalk. Hopefully people aren't putting it down at 15 inches. That would be a problem. Um, and if the approach to the button is a forward approach, meaning that you have to approach it straight on, there must be no obstruction to reach the button. If the approach to the button is a side approach, meaning you're kind of approaching it in such a way that you're going to reach to the side to, to, to push it, then there can be an obstruction up to 10 inches deep and up to 34 inches high that you might have to reach across from a side reach to push that button. And I would also want to point out here that another operable part requirement is that the force to operate the button can't be more than five pounds maximum. I think I have encountered some that are pretty tough to, to activate. Okay, now I will talk about the location of the accessible push button in relation to the intersection. So pedestrian push buttons must be located no greater than five feet from the side of a curb ramp run or the edge of the farthest associated crosswalk line from the center of the intersection. And just to be clear, the farthest crosswalk line from the center of the intersection is the crosswalk line that is farthest from your parallel traffic. So if you're standing waiting to cross the street and your parallel traffic is running on your right, then that farthest crosswalk line is on the left. Okay, and the push button must be located between 1.5 and 10 feet from the edge of the curve, curb or pavement. Okay, now, so now I want to interrupt you again. So okay. originally, I always thought the idea for this push button, and by the way, it's supposed to have a tactile arrow that's yeah, we'll pointing in that. the direction that you're... Right, we'll okay, well, but the point is, I always thought the idea was that when you were aligned and ready to cross the street, that you could reach over and hold the button when after you've pushed it. Because one of the things that happens is when the walk sign is on, that button vibrates, okay? So it helps you to get lined up. But now, if it can be 10 feet away, it, that whole function is essentially useless right I mean, well it, it has to it can be it, basically it's five feet from the edge of the curb ramp run well, but that's still, I, I that's still a, a little way reach that's a still, exactly reach? nobody you know if you have reach ranges are definitely less than five feet right. so okay. the idea and i think that's actually when i was talking about the uh, pedestrian clearance time where i said that that the um pedestrian clearance time was basically the the time that it takes to get from the push button to the edge of the pedestrian refuge island or to the other side of the street, whichever they've timed it for. Um, that's actually new in PROAG, saying that it has to be from the pedestrian push button to the, the far side. In MUTCD, it said something like it had to be the clear pedestrian clearance time was the time that it took to get from like the top of the curb ramp or the back of curb to the, the far side. So we have at least tried to take into account that the pedestrian clearance time is going to need to be longer because you're going to have to get from that push button to the other side of the street if you happen to be standing there trying to feel it vibrate um, before you cross. So that that's a little bit of a help, but it's true. It's true that, you, you know, you're not. And, and I think part of the reason that, that it has to be five feet or something like that from the from the curb ramp run is because we have to have clear space for people in wheelchairs to get to the button, and that clear space cannot overlap the ramp run itself. 
So you can't have the space that somebody's going to roll up to to get to push the button B in the curb ramp. So that that's part of the reason that it probably ends up being so far. Okay, can I go ahead or you have yeah. something else to yeah. say? Okay. So where two bus where excuse me where two but oh, I can't even talk anymore. <laughs> okay, where two push buttons are on the same corner, the push buttons must be separated by a distance of at least 10 feet. However, in alterations where it is technically infeasible to have them that far apart, they may be closer together. And this will come up again when we start talking about the audible walk indications. So they're, they're supposed to be 10 feet, more than 10 feet apart, but if you can't do that because of existing constraints, they can be closer than that. Okay, now the face of the push button must be parallel to its associated crosswalk and the pedestrian push button must have a tactile arrow with high visual contrast that is, a, that is aligned parallel to the direction of travel on its associated crosswalk. So that's what Chris was talking about with that parallel button and a parallel arrow that are hopefully gonna help you at the very least, they're going to help you know which uh, crosswalk the pedestrian signal is for, which one it's serving. It might not be so much to help you line up because you've only got that little arrow, but at least it's supposed to help it be clear which crosswalk the, the signal is actually serving. Okay, so what's supposed to happen when you push the button? So push buttons for pedestrian signal heads, again, those were the ones that have the walk and don't walk signals in them. Those must activate audible and vibrotactile walk indications, and we will get into those a little bit more. And I do want to point out here that included in this requirement are the pedestrian hybrid beacons, since those do make the driver stop and do have a walking interval for pedestrians who are trying to cross the street. So this hybrid, this pedestrian hybrid beacon basically is probably in a dark mode most of the time and is letting traffic just go through and nobody has to stop and it's all just great for the vehicles. But then when you come up to it and you push the button, then it starts to act more like a pedestrian signal head and that you, you get a, you're going to get a, an audible and, and vibrotactile walking indication and the drivers are going to have to stop. Okay, so push buttons for pedestrian activated warning devices, such as that rectangular rapid flashing beacon, must activate a speech message that indicates the status of the beacon in lieu of an audible walk indication, since these don't actually have walk intervals. And, <coughs> and for this reason, the push button for a pedestrian activated warning device must not include any vibrotactile features indicating a walk interval since there isn't one. This seems a little unfortunate to me that, you know, if you get to something like a, a rectangular rapid flashing beacon and you push the button, you're going to get some kind of speech message that tells you the status of the signal. I have not actually encountered one of these that's accessible, so I don't know what they actually say, and we don't have requirements for what they have to say. But there's no vibrotactile for this because they don't want people to think that if it vibrates, you could just step out and walk because you don't know that. The car, the okay, let me make a few comments. That, 
uh, elucidate okay. this a little more. So okay. we've been talking about accessible pedestrian signals and a signal is a light where it's always on. So think of a traffic signal, but what, you know, one side is green, cars facing the green can go, one side is red. So either way, there's always a red and there's always a green, okay? And the same is true for pedestrian signals, but beacons are different animals. Beacons only turn on or light up when a button is pressed and otherwise, they, they don't do anything. They're just dark. That's the dark mode. So the problem with these, the, the, the deal with beacons is they're cheaper, okay, than traditional pedestrian signals, which is why jurisdictions like to install them. The problem with the rectangular rapid flashing beacons is that they do not give a pedestrian a right of way. By right of way, I mean, you know, when, when you have the, the walk sign as a pedestrian and, and you get the, the, the tone that you'll hear about that says that walk sign is on, you have a right to cross the street. You have a right to be in the intersection and cars do not, okay? But with a rectangular rapidly flashing beacon, all that is, is it says yellow lights are flashing. So cars are alerted to the fact that there's a pedestrian there, but they don't have to stop. And the pedestrian doesn't have the right of way. So it's kind of like uh, a crapshoot because you're totally dependent on the car slowing down to, because they're aware that there's a pedestrian and then you're crossing, but that car is not required to stop and you don't have the right of way. And th that's a problem. And also um, that you don't have the arrow for deafblind people. And um, so it's, it's, not much of a signal, or it's not much of a, a help for blind folks, is my point. I agree with that. I, what I say, I think it should say walk and pray, or pray and walk. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, so uh, back to more about the requirements for these push buttons. So the accessible pedestrian push buttons must have a locator tone, obviously, so we can find them. Now, push button locator tones must have a duration of uh, 0.5 seconds or less and must repeat at one second intervals. The locator tone must be silent if another audible indication from the same device is active. There is an exception to this. To this <coughs> a locator tone may be silenced if a Passive detection device, if a, pa a, pa a passive detection system activates the locator tone when a pedestrian is within a 12-foot radius of the pedestrian push button. But in general, the locating to locator tone has always got to be on unless some other audible signal is coming from the, the device. Push button locator tones must be intensity responsive to ambient sound. And they must be audible 6 to 12 feet from the push button or to the building line, whichever is less. The push button locator tone must be louder than ambient sound up to a maximum volume of 5 dBA louder than the ambient sound. And the automatic volume adjustment in response to the ambient traffic sound level is capped at a maximum volume of 100 dBA. 
So these things are supposed to be getting louder if the traffic gets louder. I have actually encountered some here in D.C. that do, but most of the other ones that I've encountered do not seem to. Yeah, that's one of the big that's one of the big problems. You know, this is this is because neighbors complain that the locator uh, tone at night is too loud and they hear it and they don't want to hear it because they're trying to go to sleep. So they've made the requirement so it adjusts based on the ambient noise. But you still get uh, people that complain. And so sometimes traffic engineers turn down the locator uh, tone so and, and don't make it adjustable. So even in heavy traffic, you can't hear it. And that's right. a, you know, that's a problem. And that's, it's a that's real an problem. Improper I mean, even, even if you don't have hearing loss, it's right. a problem. because That's, that's really an improper installation, but it's pretty right. common. Yes. So, okay. Okay, now let's talk about accessible pedestrian signal walk indication. And this is what we get when we push the button or if there's some passive detection at a crosswalk with a pedestrian signal head with that signal that has the walk and don't walk indicators. So accessible pedestrian signals must have an audible and a vibrotactile walk indication during the walk interval only. I will say that if your walk the if the walk interval is really long, they only have to go for seven seconds. But if somebody comes up to it like much later and there's still plenty of time in the walk interval, a button, you know, if they press the button, they can they can recall this walk indication. Okay, now the audible walk indication must be audible from the beginning of the associated crosswalk. So if you push that button and then you go like I do and kind of stand in the curb ramp, you should be able to hear it <laughs> when it actually, when the walk indication comes up. Okay, following the audible and vibrotactile walk indication, the accessible pedestrian signals must revert to the locator, uh, must revert to the locator. <laughs> okay, now, we will talk about these, the actual audible indicators. So first we're going to talk about the percuss percussive tone. So where an, an accessible pedestrian signal is provided at a single crossing, you know, like maybe a mid-block crossing or maybe a somewhere where there's not a corner, if it's provided at a single crossing or where there are two accessible pedestrian signals at a distance of at least 10 feet on a corner, the audible walk indication must be this percussive tone. So this means that most of the time, the audible walk indication is supposed to be a percussive tone. Sounds like a machine gun in a war movie. Kind of does. I've heard, I've heard something somewhere that some people get triggered by it, but I guess it's not too many or else people would be complaining more. I don't know. Okay, so the percussive tone must repeat at 8 to 10 ticks per second with multiple frequencies and the dominant component at 880 hertz. Okay, now, where two accessible pedestrian signals on one corner are not separated by at least 10 feet, the audible walk indication must be a speech walk message. So, only in situa situations for alterations where it is technically infeasible to have those accessible pedestrian <coughs> signals at least 10 feet apart, are speech walk messages actually permitted? The speech walk messages at intersections having pedestrian phasing that is concurrent with vehicular phasing 
must be patterned after the model. Broadway walk sign is on to cross Broadway. And speech walk messages at intersections having exclusive pedestrian phasing must be patterned after the model. Walk sign is on for all crossings. Okay, and if there is a pilot light, or if a pilot light is used at an accessible... What is a pilot light? Oh my God, I knew you would ask that question. I am not, I, I have tried to get the people at my office to explain this to me better. All I can gather is that there's some kind of light, I guess, when the signal is not for walking and it's just sitting there with this pilot light because what ha when, when there's a pilot light, when you push the button, the speech message has to be wait. So it's basically at some point when you can. So it's cross. useless for blind people. We we don't really know what it is. And right, we don't know what it at all. We know is that when we push the button for it, it's going to say wait, and we're not going to cross. That's basically what that is. Okay, now we're going to move on to talk about the volume. So the volume for audible walk indications, and for that matter, the volume for the more limited message that you get with the uh, the rapid flashing beacons or the. Uh, pedestrian activated warning devices the volume those volumes have the same volume requirements as the locator tone they must be louder than the ambient sound up to a maximum volume of 5 dba louder than the ambient sound and the automatic volume adjustment in response to the ambient traffic sound level is capped at 100 at a maximum volume of 100 dba Okay, and as I mentioned, the accessible walk indication must have both an audible, audible and vibrotactile components. And for the vibrotactile component, the pedestrian push button must vibrate. That's really all we have to say about that. And it has to vibrate during the walk interval. And it might be able to be recalled if you press the button again and there's still time in the walk interval. If the walk interval is longer than seven seconds, but that's all okay, we have. To I want say to talk a little more about the button, though. So, okay. um, if you just press the button quickly, um, you're you're turning on. You're you're basically saying I'm I'm ready to uh, to get a walk signal, a progressive tone, right. and the vibrating arrow. So, when the walking man appears, you get the percussive sound, and the, the arrow vibrates, and that's great. Now, there are some options that traffic engineers have, and I just want to alert you to this, because if you press and hold the button down, so more than a second, okay, there are a couple of possibilities, and this is controlled by the traffic engineers. Uh, a held down button can uh, change the, or increase the, the crossing time you have. So if you're, uh, if you got a, light near a, a nursing home or assisted living place, you could have the button uh, extended push to reduce the walking speed necessary to cross the street. So, because older people walk slower. Another option when you do an extended push is it can say the name of the street you're crossing, okay? And yet another option, it can turn on <clears throat> a, a beacon which is essentially a sound that would help you help guide you across the street to stay in the crosswalk. Those are all options, but you only get one of them. Okay. So um, if, if that's of interest to you, depending on where you're located, you want to talk to your traffic engineer 
and and say this is the way I'd like. I'd like more time, or I'd like a beacon, um, or I'd like to hear the name of the street. Okay. That is correct because none of those are actually required. I mean, there are there's right. basically a requirement in there that says that if you're gonna you know gonna have something like that, then a one second press or less than one second press just gets you the activation of the walk interval and you know it's gonna tell you when you can cross or you know basically gonna tell you when the walk interval is timing. It doesn't tell you when you can cross. It tells you when the walk interval is timing. And if you do you know a longer press than that, then you'll get whatever the extra features are after it gives you by like you know tells you to wait and gives you uh, intersection identification because of course this stuff is not supposed to be speaking to you when the walk interval is actually timing but there's nothing that says they have to do any of those and there aren't a lot of requirements for them in proag it's just that if you have them there's just requirements for about you know the, the long right, so right. you want to know about it in case you want to have the traffic engineer put put that option put an option and what's in interesting to me hard. is if you can press it and have it the slow the walking speed i would hope that it would tell you that that's what it was going to do because how would you ever know unless they marketed it and told you that hey if you oh. push the button if you do a long button press you get taught you get to have extra time to cross that would be excellent but it would be nice if you don't know about it it's hard to take advantage of it um so it's all about marketing accessible features that's a soapbox that i will try not to get on right now <laughs> but it's it's important Okay, now I want to have a last word about accessible pedestrian uh, accessible uh, accessible pedestrian signals and pedestrian activated warning devices before we move on. So the accessibility features that we've been talking about must be available at all times. No turning them off at night or turning them off on the weekend. They're supposed to be available at all times. So don't let people tell you they can turn it off at night. I have seen that. Okay, now. Uh, and now on to roundabouts, which is the last element I'm going to Okay, cover. before we get to roundabouts. All right. So one of the big problems that we have as blind people is this increasing use of leading pedestrian intervals. So that's where uh, pedestrians are given uh, time to start crossing before traffic moves. Since we listen for traffic patterns, this can be very confusing for a blind person. So you're, you're listening for the parallel traffic to move. And when you hear the parallel traffic, that's actually traffic that's about to turn across exactly where you're gonna walk. That's a leading pedestrian interval. Now, the question is, if a, if a city agency wants to install a leading pedestrian interval uh, on a regular pedestrian visual only signal, is that gonna be an alteration, right? Uh, hopefully it would be, but the court cases say it's not because it's not a physical alteration. And somehow we've got to get that built into the definition of alteration. Yeah, it's really it's interesting be a real because, because we actually were trying to say that if you if you change the software, that should be an alteration. But as you say, that's kind of gotten shot down some. So, I mean, because if, if you're reprogramming it, that should I mean, if all you have to do to make the to make some of this stuff work is to, to, to reprogram it, then they should have to do that. But, okay. Agreed. On to roundabouts, which is the last element, and I hope I have time to do it here. I know we want to have time for question. So, a roundabout is a circular intersection with yield control at entry, which permits a vehicle on the circulatory roadway to proceed and with deflection of the approaching vehicle 
a counterclockwise around a central island. Now, I'm glad everybody knows what a roundabout basically is because I find that definition incredibly confusing. I feel like a comma is missing somewhere. But it's basically these round things that let traffic keep going around, and they're really hard for us. Okay, so there are two types of requirements for roundabouts. So first, where pedestrian circulation paths are provided at roundabouts, there are requirements for edge detection. So if the street side edge of a pedestrian circulation path at approach and along the circulatory roadway of the roundabout is not attached to the curb where pedestrian crossing is not intended, the pedestrian circulation path must be separated from, must be separated from the curb crosswalk to crosswalk with landscaping or other non-prepared surface that is 24 inches wide minimum. So what this means is that if you have a roundabout and the path where you, the pedestrian circulation path is just a long way to say the place where people walk. Um, if that walk is separated from the curb with something like a grass strip, this is just making the requirement, making it really clear exactly how that has to work that grass strip would have to be at least 24 inches wide and it has to be all around the roundabout except where a people are supposed to cross. That's yeah, it. Because if you didn't know there was a roundabout there and you're walking down this thing and you think the sidewalk and you're coming to an intersection and, and you try to cross that, what, you, what you'd end up doing if you, you didn't get killed by a car, what you'd end up doing is crossing onto the circle. You know, so you wouldn't be crossing a street. You'd be in the middle of this big. Right. Uh, so this is, well, this is to make it very clear where crossing is not intended. Yeah. So this is where this is. So we know it's not a sidewalk intersection. OK. Instead, it's a roundabout. So we have to find out where the crosswalk is to get us across one of the spokes of the roundabout. OK. Now, if the street side edge of the pedestrian circulation path at the approach and along the circulatory roadway of the roundabout is attached to the curb where pedestrian crossing is not intended, the pedestrian circulation path must have a continuous and detectable vertical edge treatment along the street side of the pedestrian circulation path from crosswalk to crosswalk and the bottom edge of this uh, vertical treatment must be 15 inches maximum above the pedestrian circulation path. So this is the case where if you have a roundabout and it just goes right out to the curb where you're walking, there is no grass strip. Then all around it where you're not to cross, there's supposed to be a vertical treatment of some sort, some sort of vertical indication that's tactile you can find with your cane that basically makes it obvious that you're not supposed to cross and that has to go all the way around except at the crosswalks. Okay, and maybe this is the, 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 the worst news for last. <laughs> so finally, we are going to talk about crosswalk treatments that for roundabouts and for uh, channelized turn lanes because the requirements are the same. Okay, so each multi-lane segment of a roundabout containing a crosswalk and the same goes for crosswalks at multi-lane channelized turn lanes. Each of those must provide treatments 
consisting of one or more of the following. So they can have a traffic control signal with a pedestrian signal head. Obviously, that's the, our favorite option. So you actually get a walk indication. Or they could have a pedestrian hybrid beacon, which is still pretty good because you get a walk indication on that once somebody pushes the button and the cars actually have to stop. Or they could have a pedestrian, they can have a pedestrian actuated rectangular rapid flashing beacon. Not so good because all you get is the status of what the beacon is doing. The cars don't have to stop. Or they could have a raised crossing, which is just kind of a tabled crossing that is supposed to slow cars down so that they are hopefully paying attention to you as you're standing there trying to cross. And it's like a wide stop. speed bump. Okay. Right. So cars look at this, right. at this thing that looks like a speed bump and they, Oh, I better slow down. Okay. Now we had a lot of discussions about this and, you know, we still ended up with this and we even tried to make it at the very least that you could have these on single, single lanes too, not just multi lanes, but we definitely did not get that through. They said there's okay, not but, enough research to show that it would really help and all this. Yeah. So are you saying that, that one of the options has to be an accessible pedestrian signal, not a visual only pedestrian signal? Is that correct? Well, that's one of the options. Um, right. But, it, but, but they have to do one of those. only pedestrian two. signal, is that an option? Excuse me? Is a visual only pedestrian signal one that the, the blind people can't, can't, they can't see the, the walking, you know, that's uh, an interesting, I mean, I, I, I am still, I'm not a traffic engineer and sometimes I feel that lack um, because I don't know if you have a raised crossing, does that mean that you don't have any kind of signal at all? Or could you still have a signal? I just don't know yeah. enough about roundabouts. I, I avoid roundabouts like the plague. More power to you guys that live places where you have to use them. Uh, everybody, thank you for sticking with us. Everybody have a great evening, and that concludes our show for September. Thanks for listening to the ACB Advocacy Update. You can reach us by emailing advocacy at acb.org. The ACB Advocacy Update is a production of the American Council of the Blind in Alexandria, Virginia. To learn more about ACB, visit us online at www.acb.org. Thank you.